Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Melissa Colston and Michael Cunningham. Hello. Hello. So today we're talking about books that have been, or in my case, are being made into movies or television episodes. It's one of the prompts on the Books and Bites reading challenge. And for those of you who are just now hearing about the reading challenge, here's a quick recap. You have to complete 12 out of 15 reading or listening prompts for a chance to win a Kindle Paperwhite or a $100 gift card to Joseph Beth Booksellers. And you can find out more on our website at justpublib.org slash books hyphen bites. So I think this is one of the easier challenges. What do you guys think? Oh, yes. Just about everything now being made is adapted from a graphic novel or book. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I feel like everything that you see on TV or in the movies is either based on a a book or is a sequel from another movie based on a book (laughs) (laughs) like there's no new stuff out there there is but it doesn't feel that way yeah yeah and it's it's kind of interesting too i mean i i think in in the case of the books that i chose they were being made into series um so i don't know there is kind of a polar proliferation of series like because of Netflix and things like that maybe that has accounted for yeah I think more. It, I think it's a way to build on like a um, to build on an audience that already exists for some sort of work like my we several of my friends and I watch Outlander because we had read the books mm-hmm. and there's this whole just built-in fan base that you don't have to recruit people to some new idea. And it excuses some of the more ridiculous things that happen in the book and in the series. Because <laughs> we already know it's coming. <laughs> but then, of course, if you're readers, there's always that issue of, mm-hmm. can it live up to the book? Yeah, like Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, yeah, so it, many hot takes. Yeah. Are you going to finish the series? And how does the... Uh, you know, especially have a, since it hasn't finished yet, this book series and the show has, you know, what's the ending going to be like? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people hated that ending. I'm yeah. Sh- yeah. Do you all have favorite movies that have been made off of books or TV series that you're that you're not talking about today? That's the problem. Like my, one of my favorite adaptations is my first book, so I will save it. Okay. One of mine that I'm not talking about today is The Shining. I love the book, but mm-hmm. Kubrick's um, version, while you know, is very different from Stephen King's version, but yet they're both considered masterpieces in their mm-hmm. own right. So. Yeah. I think I have far more books that I do not like the adaptation. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is more common. Like uh, now that you say that, I think the one that I have liked the most, like in general, is the new Wrinkle in Time adaptation. I thought they did a really good job with that, and I have a lot of nostalgia tied up with that book, so the bar was pretty high. But I thought they did a great job with that one. Um, but far more that I I think are terrible adaptations. What do you think, Carrie? 
Oh yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. But and then there are for me there are series or movies where I didn't read the book, but I I like the adaptation. But you know perhaps that's because I didn't actually read the book. Yeah, you don't have that expectation. Mm-hmm. And the other one I'll say is I really like Anne with an E, but that's not a truly faithful. Yes, yeah, I don't like you that don't one like at it. all. I liked it a lot. <laughs> but I also read Anne with an E as an adult, or Anne of Green Gables as an adult, so I don't have mm-hmm. all of that, that childhood wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. But, but right. there's plenty out there. Oh, yeah. So Absolutely. many books out yeah. there. Oh, and, and I guess a recent adaptation for me that I really loved was Little Women. Um, and that is not faithful to the book. I mean, there's a lot of that's actually brought in from Louisa May Alcott's life. Um, But yeah, I think Greta Gerwig was robbed (laughs) when the Oscars. (laughs) And um, you should watch that. And if you haven't read Little Women, definitely put that on your list. I read it in preparation to see the movie. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm excited. Yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. My first recommendation is I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ann Reed. It was recently adapted and is slated to premiere in the next few months on Netflix. It's directed by Charlie Kaufman and will star Jesse Buckley, Tony Collette, Jesse Pleeman from Breaking Bad fame, David Lewis, who played Remus Lupin from the Harry Potter films. I'm very excited for this film. The director, Charlie Kaufman, wrote and directed the critically acclaimed Anomalisa in 2015. He also wrote the screenplay for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, adaptation being John Malkovich. This atmospheric yet layered thriller transpires over the course of one night. It initially starts out as a slow burn with the nameless narrator contemplating ending things with her boyfriend Jake as they drive to his parents' house for her to meet them for the very first time. During the drive, the narrator philosophizes and talks abstractly with herself and with Jake about a range of topics including aging, memory, and reality. She's also internally struggling with the limits of being alone and the anxieties of being in a relationship, waffling between she's definitely breaking up with him to maybe she should give the relationship more time. She also reveals something about a strange caller that leaves the same weird cryptic message on her phone and contemplates whether she should tell Jake about it. So it's pretty clear right up front you're dealing with an unreliable narrator, which has you questioning and analyzing everything. The suspense is slowly ratcheted up, especially once they arrive at Jake's parents' farmhouse. On the way home from the farmhouse, they make a stop at an empty high school during an oncoming snowstorm. That's about all I can say, but I will say you might think you know what's going on and have pieced together the clues, but trust me, you haven't. This book will blow your mind. There's even a website dedicated to discussing the book and its ending. If you're interested, the website is afterthingsend.com. So on the way home, the narrator and Jake stop at a Dairy Queen during an oncoming snowstorm for some lemonade. So I paired this with a Berman lemonade I found on the Bullet Whiskey's website. We'll post a link to the recipe on the Books and Bites blog. It calls for, for a one to three ounce pour of bourbon, four ounces of lemonade, and one slice of lemon. Super easy to make. Any bourbon you have on hand will work just fine. I personally use Knob Creek to make mine. In general, I'm not a huge fan of lemonade, but I really love this drink. Sounds refreshing. Uh, yeah, it was really good. 
even in the middle of winter. <laughs> nice, nice and straightforward, very simple. Yeah. Don't have to think about it too hard. My favorite kind of recipe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My first book is one that I would consider a classic, so you could definitely double dip with it for the classics challenge, and it's Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, formerly known as Ten Little Indians. According to Wikipedia, which I referenced while I was writing this and learned, and now you will know, it is the world's best-selling mystery and has been adapted more than any of her other works, which I kind of found hard to believe, but it's a really fabulous story, so um, I believe it in the end. Anyway, it was most recently adapted, or it was recently adapted, by the BBC in 2015. The three-episode miniseries has an all-star cast, including Charles Dance from The Game of Thrones, um, and it's just really beautifully done. It has, it's not as hokey or campy as some other adaptations are. Um, I think one of the ones from the, I think it's from the 50s. I don't know, it's in black and white, and it, it's just like very melodramatic, and it's fabulous in its own way. But this one is, is very modern, it's very suspenseful, it doesn't move too quickly, um, and I, I really recommend it. We have it on DVD here at the library, and I believe you can also stream it through Acorn. Um, so, on that note, the book is essentially a locked room mystery, except the room is an island with nothing on it but a mansion, which is situated just off the coast of England. Eight guests are invited to stay at the mansion for all different reasons, and they're mostly credible. Uh, an old friend, a new job, a weekend away with school pals. However, once everyone arrives and is greeted by the couple that are there to serve as cook and butler, a recording is played and all ten individuals are accused of a murder of some kind. Fairly quickly after that, the guests start dying, each in a manner similar to that described in the nursery rhyme from which the book got its original title. Because there's no way on or off the island, the guests have to try to uncover who among them is behind the deaths as the options narrow. I think I read this for the first time in high school, and while it does feature quite a lot of murder, ev <laughs> everyone dies, um, it, it isn't very gory, like a lot of things happen off page or you know, aren't described very thoroughly. It's, it's a really short read, so murdering 10 people you gotta, you gotta move through it. Like it's, she, she moves quickly, um, which is one of the great things about reading it. Is it, you know, it is fast paced, which is why I think I really like the adaptation because it kind of slows it down and lets you feel the suspense more than the book does. Because she, Christy was just knocking them down. Anyway, um, one of the audio versions that we have is read by Dan Stevens, who played Matthew on Downton Abbey. We have it on CD and through both Kentucky Libraries Unbound and Hoopla Digital, so you have no excuses for access there. And I just have to interject. I don't. It wasn't this one that I listened to, but I have listened to another Agatha Christie that he read, and he is really good. Yeah, I didn't listen to the whole thing because I'd read it before, but I wanted to get a sense for how he did, and I, I listened to some of it. It's only six hours long. Like It, it is a fast book. Um, but he was—he did a really great job because there's women, there's um, older women, younger women, older men, younger men. Like he's just got that like mm -hmm. that Britishness. <laughs> he's got it. Um, so I highly recommend the audio. The the print version is fine as well. 
You can just imagine Matthew talking to you. <laughs> anyway, as for what to pair with, and then there were none, when the guests first arrive on the island, they are greeted by waiting drinks, and Anthony Marston thinks to himself that, quote, this was a rum kind of show. I really have no idea what that means, but <laughs> maybe Justine needs a drink. I don't know. Anyway, um, weather does play a bit of a role in the way it can affect how the characters can get on and off the island because it involves a boat ride. And if the weather is too rough, they can't take that boat ride. So I propose a dark and stormy is the perfect drink to pair with this page turner. I recommend specifically Gosling's black rum and Gosling's ginger beer. There's just something about their ginger beer that is, it's just right, um, especially for this drink. And you need to add perhaps more lime juice than you think you should, but I promise you it makes a huge difference. So like at least the juice of half a lime, maybe a whole lime, just keep going until it's like, <laughs> oh, there it is. You'll, you'll know. I promise. Uh, so you just pour that all over ice, and you have one of my favorite drinks. But like I said, the amount of lime is key. Do not be skimpy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I admonish you. <laughs> that sounds great. Thanks. So my first book is Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know they were adapting that. Yeah. So Amazon ordered a limited TV series of it, um, oh, actually before it was even published. Um, and Reese Witherspoon's company is adapting it um, and producing it. Cool. Um, so I, I'm not, I don't think they've released said when it's going to be released um but that doesn't matter you should read or listen to it beforehand and this book i just found out that it's a finalist for the 2020 audio awards for multi-voice performance so the would, audio is phenomenal yeah that's how i listened to it definitely i and in fact i've read other reviews that didn't enjoy it as much in print yeah that makes sense i really liked it in audio Apparently we're big fans here. <laughs> I saw you toting off a copy of it the other day from the. Fr yes, I found one on the on the free shelf. Yeah. And so I took it home for my wife to read, and it looked pretty interesting. It almost seemed like, kind of like in the vein of Almost Famous, the the film. Yeah, kind of. Bit. Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the novel structure make it perfect, make it a perfect fit for TV adaptation, um, or for audiobook, which is why I think the audiobook was so good. It's formatted like the transcript of an oral history or a fictional rock documentary. So it has interviews with band members and friends and family. The book tells the story of a 1970s rock band that sounds a lot like Fleetwood Mac. Daisy Jones is a free-spirited but vulnerable California girl who is starting to make a name for herself as a singer. When Daisy opens for The Six on tour, a rock band led by the mercurial Billy Dunn, they start to sell out shows. The Six's producer realizes that the two are better together and Daisy joins the band. The novel focuses on the band as they make their first album with Daisy and it is as juicy as you'd expect. 
Creative and sexual tensions abound, especially between Daisy, an addict, and Billy, who's in recovery. I found the points of view of the female band members and how they fight in different ways against society's expectations of them particularly compelling. While Daisy's talent and good looks means things sometimes come easy for her, she craves recognition for her songwriting abilities. She's not afraid to show her body, but is careful to frame it in her own terms. On the other hand, Karen, the keyboard player, wears turtlenecks and jeans when she plays in an effort to be taken seriously. Unfortunately, not all of the female characters are as well drawn as these two. Billy Dunn's wife, Camila, comes off far too saintly and long-suffering, in my opinion. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> My husband and I listened to this on audio during a summer road trip to Pittsburgh, and it actually made us look forward to the drive home. I appreciated the character-driven story, and Scott, a musician and music fan who reads a lot of band biographies, appreciated the author's careful research. We both loved the full cast performance, especially Jennifer Beals' portrayal of Daisy Jones. Her perfectly imperfect, slightly scratchy California girl voice was spot on. And I can't really imagine anyone else playing her, but she is not playing her in the uh, in the movie or series. I liked what Benjamin Bratt did, Billy, I think. Mm -hmm. he. I thought he did a really good job, too. Yeah. I have a lot of opinions about this book. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they, the performances were all great. Yeah. Scott and I agreed that the ending was a little cheesy and unrealistic, but even that didn't spoil the fun of this listen. So Daisy and Billy have lunch at the Apple Pan before their first songwriting session together. Daisy chooses both the place and the food. Quote, I just wanted to put Billy in his place a little bit, she says. I wanted him to have to deal with me being in charge. But of course, he couldn't let it go. He said, I was going to order the hickory burger anyway, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy Daisy Jones and the Six with your favorite burger, the messier the better. Sidebar in Lexington has great meat and vegetarian versions, homemade potato chips, and plenty of rock and roll vibes. You can't lose even if someone else orders for you. My second recommendation is Bird Box by Josh Mallerman. The movie adaptation was released in 2018 on Netflix. If you haven't seen it yet, you're one of the few that haven't, with it being watched some 80 million times in its first four weeks, according to Netflix. Oh, no, I've missed out. <laughs> <laughs> it stars Sandra Bullock, John Malkovich, Little Ray Howery, and Sarah Paulson. They call it The Problem. Incidents begin in Russia and then start spreading throughout the rest of the world. People are seeing something that drives them insane, causing them to harm anyone around them, and they commit suicide in pretty horrific ways. They've deduced that it's likely creatures that human minds just can't reconcile. It's very Lovecraftian in that way. Bird Box follows Mallory's journey for survival in this new world. The novel alternates between the present and flashbacks to just over four years prior. The story opens with Mallory in a house alone with two children named Boy and Girl, preparing to take a perilous voyage in a rowboat down the Michigan River blindfolded in the hopes of finding safety. It then flashes back to four years prior 
is Mallory discovers she's pregnant right as the world is essentially coming to an end. She finds an ad in the paper for a house accepting survivors of the problem. When she arrives, she is greeted by five strangers, Cheryl, Don, Felix, Jules, his border colleague Victor, and their de facto leader, Tom. When they start letting other survivors in, like Olympia, a young pregnant woman, and Gary, things start to get tense and the fragile stability of the household starts fracturing. The novel spends a lot of time exploring the fears and anxieties of motherhood. As Mallory travels downriver, she's internally grappling with what it means to be a good mother, especially in this new world, and whether she can realistically protect the children long enough to reach safety as they run into several hostile obstacles. The psychological terror and suspense don't let up, with the alternating chapters really helping to ratchet up and sustain both throughout the course of the entire novel. In one scene, for example, Felix travels outside to fetch water from the well, and his mind starts to run wild with fear after he hears something in the woods. Yeah, no, no, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> Did he hear just a footstep, an animal? Was it human or one of the creatures? Also, Mr. Malman doesn't show us the creatures, making them that more terrifying, which I find is a highly effective technique in horror. I usually find the monsters never are as scary when they show it to you. I'll be honest, the movie does not hold a candle to the book. It diverges from the book a lot and not not it diverges from the book a lot and not necessarily for the better. Major plot points and scenes were rushed, changed, or not there, lessening the overall psychological tension that the book does so well. However, the film is not a bad representation of a post-apocalyptic thriller. Also, get ready for the sequel, Mallory, which is slated to be published later this year July, on July 21st. And I'm sure Netflix won't be too far behind with the movie adaptation. <laughs> I continue with the drink theme for pairings, choosing Bell's Two-Hearted Ale, a beer brewed in Kalamazoo, Michigan, named after the Two-Hearted River in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. This highly rated IPA is brewed with Centennial Hops, giving it notes of citrus and pine that has a formidable malt backbone that nicely balances out the hops. It's personally one of my favorite go-to IPAs and pairs well with spicy dishes, burgers, barbecue, and even sweet desserts. So my second recommendation is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Memoirs of a Literary Forger by Lee Israel, which was made into a film in 2018 with Melissa McCarthy starring as the author. The short book details Israel's efforts to earn money by scamming autograph dealers with the forged letters of dead celebrities. Israel wrote the book several years after her scam was busted. She served five years probation and no jail time, but because of the decade that passed between the end of her sentence and when she wrote the book, the story has a hefty amount of hindsight. I found the tone similar to that of Helene Hanf in 84 Charing Cross Road, still very lighthearted and literary and self-deprecating, but this time with forgery and alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> the text includes copies of her forgeries for which Israel provides the background on and reasoning for her different choices in the writing, you know, where she got different phrases and how she went about learning how to copy signatures. That was my favorite part. Um, I particularly appreciated the parts of the book where she talked about where she got her ideas and how she created the letters themselves. She did a ton of research going to different special collections and libraries, and at one point she turns to actually stealing the letters, the, the real letters, and replacing them in the libraries. Like she, she brings a copy that she has made and puts it into the, 
to the archival collection and takes the original and sells it. Um, that, that, that's what ends up getting her, her caught in the end. But um, the, the beginning where she is first sort of figuring out how to go about forging these letters, I, I really liked that part. Um, and having her notes alongside, like to be able to actually look at the, the forgeries themselves is pretty cool in the book. Unfortunately, the movie doesn't really capture any of that aspect of the book, and because the movie is done in the present and not as a reflection on her past, the tone is 100% about the depressed and despairing Israel that committed the crimes and not the rehabilitated Israel that had a great adventure years before. As a result, the movie is just much sadder than the book. Um, I enjoyed the movie, but it, it was very depressing. And the book <laughs> is not. <laughs> like I said, it, it really reminded me of 84 Cheering Crossroad, and it has this this lighthearted, like, wasn't that a great adventure I had, even though, you know, I was on probation for six years. Whatever, it's fine. Um, <laughs> she, you know, she can look back on it and laugh. And, and she comes out for the better in the end, and you don't really know that during the movie. So anyway, as for what to appear with Can You Ever Forgive Me?, Lee drinks a self-destructive amount of scotch throughout the memoir, so I turn to the first scotch that I have ever found that I actually enjoy, and that is the Highland Single Malt Scotch from Trader Joe's, which luckily for me is very affordable. (laughs) It is aged for 10 years, and the bottle that we have on hand was finished in bourbon barrels, which may account for my affinity for it. It's cheap and relatively mild on the peat flavor spectrum, so if you're new to scotch or not big into smelling like a campfire, try this one out. <laughs> I remember when the movie came out and I wanted to see it but and didn't, but it sounds like I should just read the book. Yeah, kind of like it was almost disappointing because Melissa McCarthy is so great comedically and she does have a couple of chances to be a comedian in the movie, but it's just way more about her being depressed and hating her life and... Mm-hmm being desperate and that's a bummer but i would recommend it just you know be in a good place when you watch it (laughs) 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 so my last pick is the good lord bird by james mcbride which is currently in production as a showtime miniseries scheduled for release in 2020 and starring Ethan Hawke. This novel won the 2013 National Book Award for Fiction, so it could also count as an award winner. The narrator of The Good Lord Bird is a slave boy named Henry Shackelford who is, depending on the perspective, either kidnapped or freed by abolitionist John Brown during a violent incident at a Kansas tavern. Brown mistakes Henry for a girl, and though Henry initially protests, he quickly learns that passing as a girl could help him survive. And so he becomes Henrietta, or Little Onion, as Brown calls him. Onion travels with Brown's ragtag group of anti-slavery free staters as they fight against the pro-slavers during the series of pre-Civil War conflicts, often referred to as Bleeding Kansas. Onion later serves as Brown's traveling companion, accompanying him on a speaking tour across the Northeast and participating in Brown's ill-fated 1859 raid on the Armory Depot at Harper's Ferry. 
With its underdog protagonist, shoot-em-up gunfight scenes, and satirical voice, The Good Lord Bird reminds me of a cross between Charles Portis's True Grit and Paul Beatty's The Sellout. McBride's scathing humor doesn't spare many of the historical figures who appear in this novel. Brown is portrayed as a lunatic whose hours-long prayers are, quote, more sense than sensibility, unquote, and whose freed slaves are not always sure they're better off. Quote, that's the thing about working under old John Brown, Onion says, and if I'm telling a lie, I hope I drop down a corpse after I tell it. I was starving fooling with him. I was never hungry when I was a slave, unquote. Yet Brown is also the kindest man Onion knows, as well as a man of action. In contrast, Frederick Douglass is characterized as a womanizer who'd had, quote, too many boiled pigeons and meat jellies and buttered apple pies. He was a man of parlor talk, of silk shirts and fine hats, linen suits and ties. He was a man of words and speeches, unquote. Only Harriet Tubman, called General Tubman by Brown, is beyond reproach. The novel's comic sensibility doesn't prevent it from fully capturing the tragedy and desperation of the enslaved, whether they are resisting or just trying to survive. As Onion says of a slave woman whom he suspects knows his secret, quote, but this was during bondage time, and when you in bondage, you is drowning in a manner of speaking. You no more pay attention to the getup of the feller next to you than you do the size of his shoes if he got any, for both of you is drowning in the same river." Unquote. Pair the good lord bird with peach-glazed pearl onions from the cookbook Afro-Vegan by Bryant Terry. The recipe honors Henry's nickname, of course, but it also nods to the jar of peaches used to bribe another slave for information. Here the onions are roasted to bring out their sweetness, then tossed with a puree of peaches and sugar. That sounds delicious. Yeah, I haven't haven't actually tried it, but it does sound There's a lot yummy. of things in that book that I'm like, oh, I should mm-hmm. really get around to making those. Mm-hmm. I've looked through quite a bit through that book. I need to look through that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't actually made anything, but I have thought, so it's that inspiring. sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We produce this podcast in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. For more information, visit our website at jesspublib.org slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com. 